Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. The national emergency in public health, emergency declarations related to the COVID-19 pandemic, will terminate on May 11th, 2023. These emergency declarations in place since 2020 waived or modified requirements in a range of areas, including in the Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP programs, as well as in private health insurance. The end of these special measures will see between 5 and 14 million Americans lose their Medicaid coverage, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. More than 30 million Americans already don't have health insurance, and millions more are underinsured. Even with insurance, medical costs are so high that medical bills are the cause of bankruptcy for half a million people a year, the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. The average American spends more than $12,500 per year on personal health care, some $4 trillion annually. A citizen in France spends $5,468, in Canada, $5,905, in Germany, $7,382 for universal care. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development found that despite the high cost of U.S. health care, on nearly every critical ranking from life expectancy at birth and deaths from avoidable conditions, the U.S. consistently ranks at the bottom. 68,000 Americans die every year because they are uninsured or underinsured. This is because the U.S. healthcare system does not serve the public. It serves the medical, insurance, and drug companies whose lobbyists gut regulations and block healthcare reform. In 2020, the CEOs of 178 major healthcare companies collectively made $3.2 billion in total compensation. That was up 31% from 2019, all in the midst of the pandemic. According to Axios, in 2020, the CEO of Cigna took home $79 million. The CEO of Centene made $59 million. The CEO of United Health Group received $42 million in total compensation. The CEO of Moderna got a $926 million golden parachute after his company received $2.5 billion in taxpayer dollars from the Trump administration to develop its COVID vaccine. These huge profits were being made when over 330,000 Americans died during the pandemic because they could not afford to go to a doctor on time. Joining me to discuss the debacle that is the U.S. healthcare system is Dr. Margaret Flowers, an advisor to the Board of Physicians for a National Health Program and one of the country's most prominent advocates for single-payer health insurance. Margaret, let's begin with how we got here. Uh, there was a proposal several decades ago, I believe it was under the Truman administration, I can't remember, for single payer. That got stopped and then bring us up to where we are today. Right. I mean, there's actually been a movement for a national health insurance for more than 100 years now in the United States. But 
And David Barton Smith writes beautifully about this. The, the movement keeps compromising, just as it did in 2010 under the Affordable Care Act. But there didn't used to be um, having profiting off of health care was not legal in the United States until the 1970s under the Nixon administration. And there's you know tape of Nixon saying, oh, the companies can make a lot of money off of this. But Reagan really took it to another le level when he brought uh, investment firms into the Department of Health and Human Services and trained them on how to take over health care, what they called a, fer a fertile field for making profits. And so since that time, not only have we seen the consolidation and privatization of our healthcare system, but the public portion of our, of our healthcare system, Medicaid and Medicare, are also majority privatized now to the point where for the top five major health insurance corporations, more than half of their revenue just comes from paying, being paid by the government for running Medicaid and Medicare. So it's, it's eating into those public systems that we were trying to preserve to at least have some space in our healthcare system that was about taking care of people and not making profits. Let's go back to Obamacare. You were very involved in fighting for single payer. Obama promised that single payer universal health care would be an option, uh, which uh, I guess under pressure from the insurance and pharmaceutical industry, he removed. It never was. Uh, um, but that that was you. You called out. I mean, I think in retrospect, you've been proven right. You, Kevin Z's, and other activists. But talk about that kind of seminal moment because it's an important moment. And you saw. I remember hearing you speak. You you knew what was coming. It was an important moment for me personally as well. You know, uh, Physicians for a National Health Program is based in Chicago, where Obama lived. Uh, one of the leading members, he's deceased now, but Dr. Quentin Young, uh, was in the practice that treated Obama, you know, for health care. And, and as a state senator, uh, Obama used to go around with Quentin Young and others saying health care is a human right, right? But and And that was somewhat, he was trying to give that message during the campaign. But then we have to recognize, I think he was uh, one of the first presidents that received, you know, such huge amounts of money from the health insurance corporations, the pharmaceutical corporations. And so we thought we might have some seat, but it was very clear from March of that year, 2009, when he came into office, um, he was holding a summit at the White House and he was inviting the health insurance corporations and the pharmaceutical companies and no proponents of of a single-payer system. And we protested that. And finally, they did a let a few in, but it was really for show, not substance. Um, and so at every bit of that fight, we were excluded. In fact, they designed and supported alternative organizations to convince people who would otherwise support a universal single-payer healthcare system that that was not achievable, that this is what you can have, and this is what you should be fighting for. And so divided the movement right from the get-go. And, and that was when you know, we met, I was a congressional fellow for Physicians for National Health Program. We met with members of Congress beginning in December of 2008, saying, just compare our proposal to yours. And as soon as the hearings began, it was clear that they were not going to include us in any way. Just, you know, the round table, business roundtable was there, the Chamber of Commerce was there, the CEOs were there, but we weren't there. And so that's when we had to kind of step up and say, people need to know what's going on here. This is being written by the corporations and not in the interest of people. What well, was Fowler, wasn't Is that her name? So Liz Fowler was the architect. Yeah, former uh, vice president of WellPoint, one of the large insurance corporations. And she wrote the white paper and she with Max Baucus, who was the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, they really shepherded and oversaw that whole process. 
And, uh, and then Obama appointed her to write the regulations, the Department of Health and Human Services. And now she's wreaking havoc in Medicare, private, fully privatizing Medicare through this new Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation. I remember the time you saying the American public was being forced to buy what you call this defective product. Uh, and you talked about how uh, there would be no control over so-called copays, um, which, of course, is proven to be correct. Take us from that point to where we are now. Uh, and we've seen all sorts of horrible uh, moves by the pharmaceutical industry, and in, in, like insulin. I mean, talk a little bit about how people are being priced out of medication, which they depend on for their very survival. Yeah. I mean, let's look at the environment at that time where about 50 million people in the United States didn't have health insurance. And so there was a demand to do something. And the health insurance corporations were panicking, too, because they wanted those people to be buying their product. And so the solution to them was force everyone to buy it or pay a penalty. And this was a new level of not only was the government saying you have to buy purchase private health insurance, but we're going to set up a market and we're going to sell it for the insurance companies and we're going to give people money to help them pay the premiums to the health insurance companies. So the health insurance corporations get hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies every year. And there was this message, you know, they were trying to say, well, this is going to bring prices down because the health insurance companies are going to compete with each other and they're going to have to lower their prices. No, they carved up the, the market. And so most people have very little choice of which, you know, health insurance companies they can buy a plan from in their area. And while they said that people can't be denied on the basis of a pre-existing condition, what the insurance companies did is they look at the regions and if they're not making money in a certain region, they could just pull out. And, the, and so that's how they get around having to actually pay for care. So since then, you know, health insurance premiums continue to rise, the out-of-pocket costs continue to rise. and What's really interesting, again, kind of a new level of, of atrocity is, is that if a doctor is providing, because now like the hospital, these, these mergers that have happened where the hospital corporations have their own insurance, they, they own the labs, they own the practices. If a doctor actually is trying to provide too much care to their patients, they can just pull their health insurance, you know, kick them out and then they lose all of those patients. There are also, if a, a certain department, pediatrics, OBGYN, uh, psychiatry, if it's not making money for the hospital, they just shut the entire department down. That's happened in Maryland through our nonprofit, you know, MedStar. They gave two days notice at one hospital that serves a majority Medicaid population. They were shutting down the entire pediatric department, including the, the pediatric emergency room, uh, the Center for Children Who Have Been Abused. Shut it down. Let's talk about drug prices. Oh, and, and then, drug prices, and, and, yeah. and also the way they've closed, especially in rural populations, yeah. aren't even being served. Right. Well, I mean, when it comes to drug prices, what people need to know in the United States is that there is no rational basis for the pricing of any of our healthcare services. It's basically what they can get away with. And so that's what we see in the, in the pharmaceutical corporations, not only charging as much as they can for medications that people's lives depend on. So what choice do you have? You have to pay that that price, but also for certain medications that, you know, are not expensive to make, but they can't make as much of a profit off of it. They just, you know, stop making them. So it's not about health or what we need. It's about what the, that market can get away with. And, and people should know that when 
they bring these new drugs on the on the market, most of the time they're just tweaking a chemistry, you know, from the previous one, but they patent, they give it a new name. They don't have to prove that it's better than what they had before. Uh, so, you know, they, they just then they pay their whole army of drug pushers to go out into the practices and, and strong arm the doctors to sell their their products. So that's not in the in the interest of people at all. Um, and then, the yeah, we talked about, you know, our, our hospital supply, particularly in the rural areas, but also in low income urban areas. Uh, these these corporations come in, they buy up the hospitals, they run them into the ground. And then they just sell them off to be developed in the in the cities. You know, they become luxury condominiums in the in the rural areas. They just shut them down, and this really destroys some of these small communities because, in some places, that local hospital is a big, uh, you know, provider of jobs, but also might be the provider of of services like an ATM machine or you know the other things that they couldn't get in their town. And so, in the United States, in 1975, we had about 1.5 million hospital beds and a population of about 216 million people. Um, now, with a population of over 330 million people, we have around 925,000 beds. So we've lost, you know, a significant number of beds, and that hurt us during the pandemic when we saw our hospitals getting overwhelmed, and we just didn't have the facilities to handle these patients. It is racialized in the sense that it's poor people of color who pay the worst price in terms of mortality statistics, especially. Uh, there was an article in the New York Times that poor people on insulin are trying to ration their insulin. They're not taking the full dose. Um, but this, of course, is, if not ineffective, you know, it's certainly harmful. Uh, but let's talk about that racial component. Yeah, well, in the United States... Healthcare system is. Let's be honest; it's been a racist system from its very onset, um, and that continues today. And I think there's starting to be a little bit of a reckoning that oh, we do have a racist healthcare system. But uh, you know, look at the COVID nineteen pandemic because that really exposed this this problem. And you know, part of it was not prioritizing communities of color and getting masks and vaccines and things that they needed and education out to them. Part of it was that there is a, a justified distrust of the U.S. healthcare system by a lot of people who live in black communities uh, because they haven't been treated fairly and have been actually, you know, experimented upon, let's be honest, uh, with no regard for their, their health or their lives. Um, and then look at, you know, who are the essential workers and, and how were they treated and not, you know, being forced to work in conditions where they knew that they were facing risks of getting sick or dying and, and they weren't protected. And, you know, so the number of OSHA complaints skyrocketed early in the, in the pandemic. And so now we see that when you look at who gets sick with COVID and who dies, it's three to four times more likely that some, a person of color is going to be infected, is going to die. And what's interesting is though, if a person of color gets infected and gets into the hospital, they're more likely, they, for some reason, they have a better outcome than someone who's white. I, I can't explain that. There's no, there's no biological basis to race, but, but, uh, but that's the experience that we're seeing. Uh, but still, their life expectancy has fallen much faster than life expectancy for white populations. And I think the medical bankruptcies, much higher proportion of people who are black are, are in medical bankruptcy. Well, we're seeing life expectancy is falling. Yeah. Uh, the, in terms of uh, maternal deaths in births. Much higher. 
uh, it, it's going up, especially, of course, if you're black or brown. Right. Um, let's talk about how uh, the medical system is endangering the health of a public which doesn't go for preventative care because they can't afford it. And then even when they are sick, uh, they won't go. I mean, you'll periodically read these stories about people don't they, – uh, they may be uh, injured or sick, but they don't want to get in an ambulance because they can't afford the thousands of dollars you're charged from being driven to an emergency room. Getting sick or injured in the United States is scary, not just because you're sick or injured, but because y you could ruin your whole life and your family financially. People go bankrupt. They lose their houses. And so whereas, you know, in other countries that have wealthy countries, we're the only wealthy country that doesn't have a universal system, um, you know, people make the decision about whether to go see a doctor based on what they're feeling in the United States. First is you recognize I might need to see a doctor. The next conversation you have is, can I afford to go see that doctor? Can I afford to be diagnosed with, with a you know, life-threatening condition? And, and so people make really difficult choices. Uh, and it's interesting because there was a RAND study that showed that no matter what your socioeconomic status, your level of education, people without a medical background are not able to make a good decision about whether they should go or not. You know, so. Um, so having, you know, having this incentive to not go, it, people are not good at making that decision about when it's life-threatening or not, um, is the point I'm trying to make. But it's, you know, to me, this is, uh, people talk about their concerns of having a universal system because there might be some sort of rationing. Um, in the United States, we ration healthcare in the cruelest way possible based on a person's ability to pay. And I know of people who've made decisions not to get cancer treatment because they wanted to keep their house. People who committed suicide because they didn't want to, you know, bankrupt their family. This doesn't happen in other wealthy nations. Let's talk about what it's done to the medical profession. Mm -hmm. um, you have huge shortages of nurses, doctors. Um, the, the, the privatization of every aspect is essentially driving people out of the medical field. This is really... Uh, a very sad thing because I remember years ago uh, talking to physicians who said we think most of the doctors in the United States are in some stage of, of grief, you know, denial, anger, um, because of the way you do this training, you want to get out there and take care of your patients, and then you just start running into obstacles everywhere. And now medicine has become so corporatized that even, you know, those little family doc practices or pediatric practice practices, they're going extinct because the insurance companies will drop you and you were forced into a corporate system so that you can still be in that insurance so that you could still see your patient. And then you don't have any autonomy. And they, I remember meeting with some doctors uh, at their lunch break in a big practice and they were all worried that day because their numbers were coming out and where their numbers going to be. And that's not what doctors should be thinking about. And so it's really demoralizing to physicians and it, it, it's one of the reasons why I left practice is because you can't. All the incentives are against doing what you need to do for your patient. You have to fight for every little thing, and, and that has to change. But also because it's profit-driven, well, they strip stra staff down in hospitals. Yeah, nursing staff, uh, yeah, physician staff. Yeah, they, the nurses are completely overworked, um, and you can't provide good care in that environment. You, 
you, the nurse is really the the eyes and ears and the caregiver, the direct caregiver, and, and you can't give the necessary care if you have way too many patients to take care of, and so it's taking a toll on you know it takes a toll on everyone with, within our healthcare system because it's about profit. And here are people who actually want to do some good things, and and you're prevented from that. Let's talk about what the trajectory is. Um, as I mentioned in the opening, these profits are obscene. These bonuses are obscene, um, but they're uh, they're carnivores. Uh, they they where are they taking us? What what are they doing at the moment? Well, they'll stop at nothing. I mean, as we saw in Maryland, where where they're stripping essential services from hospitals that have served communities in order to build these huge surgical centers that do cardiovascular and orthopedic, because that's a big Money makers. So, where are we going to go for our, you know, for our OBGYN care? Where are we going to go for our pediatric care with this type of of trajectory and and shutting down the hospitals? I mean, I remember, you know, it used to be that you know black people were turned away from hospitals and they had to drive miles and miles and miles to try to find a hospital that would take them in. Now this is everybody in a rural community. They're, the hospitals just aren't there, and you're driving, and that has impacted mortality for people, higher mortality in these communities. From preventable causes, if they had health care, so this is not sustainable. It's not sustainable based on the way that we're treating the health professions. Uh, at some point, because this is an issue that touches on every single person, uh, this this is going to have to change. And yet, they're disemboweling those segments: veterans, the VA, mm-hmm. uh, or Medicare people who actually have. A system that functions. They're destroying it. Right. They're they're privatizing the VA. And of course they they cloak it under this is better for our veterans. They're gonna have more choice. I mean, where have we heard these words right. before? Uh people are most people are not even aware of what's happening to Medicare, but the goal, as stated by Liz Fowler's, you know, Center for Innovation, is to have it fully privatized by the year 2030. And what does this mean for seniors? It means that you're going to be in the same boat as people who have private health insurance, where you have high out-of-pocket costs, you're denied care. We see through these Medicare so-called advantage plans, people who need rehab, they're, they're kicked out early. They, they can't get the necessary rehab that they need. Uh, this is devastating. This was a program that was meant to serve our senior and our chronically ill population, and, and it's another profit-making center now for the the private corporations. And the same with Medicaid. The vast majority of people in Medicaid are in these private, they're in these MCOs called a managed care organization. These managed care organizations can take 40 to 50 percent of the money they receive from the government for their administrative, their uh-huh. pay, their salary, whereas traditional Medicaid, you know, it's 2 percent that goes into administrative costs. So that's robbing money that could be used to pay for care for people. Well, let's talk about where we're headed. It, it, you you mentioned earlier that it's not a sustainable system. Uh, certainly, in terms of public health, it's not sustainable. It may be sustainable for corporate profit, but where are they driving us? What, 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 where are we where are we going to go? Well, where we're going right now is is you know, and, and Congress is aiding and abetting this. They they just continue to find ways to. Give people the illusion that they're doing something about the problem, but every time it means either throwing more money at the corporations or giving them more tax breaks or, you know, protecting their their profits, their interests. But I think this is 
not going to be sustainable for the American public. And we see that, you know, the polling data shows that people support having a healthcare system. And it's interesting because what's been even people who consider themselves to be conservative and traditionally were, you know, we support the market are more and more beginning to understand and say, oh, no, I, I like Medicare. I like my traditional Medicare. I like being able to choose my doctor and be able to get the care that I that I need. So I think public sentiment is going to continue to grow. And my hope is, and, I, and also I just see so many kind of organizations and groupings within the United States who advocate on other issues, but who also understand that we need a universal healthcare system. So this is really becoming part of their demands as well. So um, the trajectory we're on is not a good one. And, um, and it depends on how much Congress can get away with continuing to funnel public dollars into these private corporations. But I think from a popular level, um, more and more people, as they continue to see that nothing is done and they can't afford their health care and their loved ones are dying or they are, they're, you know, they're going to do something about but it. But it's even worse than not being able to afford it. It's increasingly more expensive. It, 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 right. that, that it's not just that it prices out a large segment of the population, but year after year, a larger and larger segment is priced out. Right, right. And it's eating up more and more of our, our GDP. So nobody is safe in this. I mean, I, I know of people who were fairly well off prior to an important illness and ended up losing anything, everything anyway. So nobody is, is... And we should be clear that a lot of these people have insurance. If you look at, you know, so as you mentioned, medical bankruptcy is the, is the leading cause of personal bankruptcy in the United States, medical illness. And more than around 80% of people who went bankrupt due to medical illness had health insurance at the onset. But we have a system that ties health insurance to employment. And that's another situation that makes no sense at all, not only because it gives the employers a lot of control over their workers, and that's why every worker should be opposed to that, but uh, because as soon as you become ill, you lose risk losing your health insurance at the time that you need it the most. It makes absolutely no sense. And yet the Democratic Party is completely complicit in all of this. Um, they sometimes mouth, like Obama, the right words, but they're captive to the healthcare industry. And then they wonder why people don't want to vote for them because they, you know, as they make these promises and they, they absolutely work against it uh, in every way. And those in Congress, it was interesting is like the few champions I knew in Congress that tried to hold strong and push, they were, they were in some way, they were pushed out. And Dennis Kucinich was right. the last stalwart. And I remember that uh, just before the vote on the Affordable Care Act, and he was the last one voicing opposition, President Obama flew him on an airplane to his district and held a big rally and got out there and said, we're going to do health care and it's going to be great. And then he pushed Dennis out there and said, so what are you going to do, Dennis? And he told him on the way back in the plane, if this goes down, I'm blaming you. It was a you know tremendous arm twisting and manipulation. I think Dennis voted for it. I can't remember if he did or not. He may he not have needed to have his vote for it, but, well, but anyway, I, he, yeah, if, if it had gone down, it was all going to be placed. And then he ended up being redistricted and pushed out right. right after that. Anyway, they punished him, you know, for daring. How do we break the back of uh, a healthcare industry whose lobbyists control the legislative process? And I would also ask you just in the closing minutes to talk about the coverage because they, if you, networks like CNN rely on their advertising. Right. Um, 
you know, the it, you, voices like yours are essentially not only at the best at the margins and usually shut out. Right, we are. And, and, and that was the interesting thing during the uh, Affordable Care Act. Uh, we had um, Obama's personal physician was invited to the White House as part of an ABC thing, and I think it was April of 2009. And then he was quoted in an article saying he thought we should have a universal health care system, and he was disinvited. We had, you know, Dr. Quentin Young, who served as Dr. Martin Luther King's personal physician, and Obama's personal physician asking the Washington Post to let them write an op-ed, and they wouldn't even talk to them. I mean, this was the the collusion, and it all has to do with what we call interlocking directorates, where the CEOs of these corporations are also on the boards of these media outlets and so and the advertising dollars, you know, as well. So they wield tremendous power. So people need to understand that a lot of the information that they're getting is not accurate information. They they package these things, they make them sound really good. But but right now, Congress, uh, you know, is aligned with these these corporations, and they donate equally to Republicans yeah. and Democrats. And especially if they see that one party is likely to take over and they're going to be in charge of the committees, then they really pump a lot of money, you know, into that party. So we win this the same way that we've won every other battle. We have to educate ourselves and others. We have to speak out about it. We need to connect. We need to understand that health is fundamental. It's connected to everything and that there is no incremental way that we can do this. We cannot work within the for-profit system to fix this problem. We have to nationalize our healthcare system. And that means getting the profit out completely. And that's unfortunately in the bills that are in Congress right now, they don't take that step. They continue to try to allow the for-profits to operate within the system, but they're parasites and they're always going to push it and take as much as they can. And every dollar they take means a dollar less of somebody getting the care that they need. So it's, it's the fundamental, it's education, organizing, connecting this to other issues and putting pressure and taking action in our own communities. There are a lot of efforts uh, that people can take you know, locally to try to save their hospitals, uh, to set up alternative formations. We saw that during the pandemic, black doctors going into communities and taking care of people there. These are the things we need to, at every level, be doing in our country. One of the little pieces of trivia I learned covering the campaign was that they sponsor the, the candidates' debates. That's mm. why they lock Kucinich out. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a, the debate commission is a private corporation, and it had pharmaceutical and insurance money to run. Yeah, that's the whole other thing. Is yeah, it's called the Commission on Presidential right. Debates, but it's a completely private entity, and yeah. and that's why we, one of the main reasons we don't have democracy in this country is because all the other voices, if you're not part of the Democratic or Republican Party, is shut out right. of the debates. Great. That was Dr. Margaret Flowers, advisor to the Board of Physicians for a National Health Program. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. I've been terrorized all my days.